dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you You have to treat the public as potential terrorists Not as citizens It's a whole change in politics MIE terror identities form part of a wider international effort to initiate cross-border security networks share relevant information among the intelligence community and disseminate key strategic solutions to acts of terrorism and multi-issue extremism. Indeed, the ultimate aim of such practices is to rationalize all forms of extremism, including public acts of dissent. You don't have in Britain the equivalent of the Shabak, the Shin Bet. That's one of the reasons why Israel is so important in training the British police and British security. The whole structure of control over the Palestinians in exports. So Israel is really globalizing Palestine. It's exporting the occupation outwards. Israel's framing, ability to frame and get us thinking with a certain language that prejudices the way we approach problems is also something that, that it exports. This paper examines how a comparative fusion intelligence complex sought to reclassify acts of dissent under the rubric of counter-terrorism discourse. You're listening to episode 728 of Unwelcome Guests. Globalizing the Occupation, Israel's service to the hegemon, Britain's fusion intelligence complex. I'm Robin Upton. We have two new contributors to the show this week. You've heard them both. I wanted to give an overview to the larger picture. It's a familiar larger picture. This is a new angle on it, looking at the commercial exploitation of the occupation to develop strategies, techniques and weapons technologies for controlling subject populations. And if you're living in the UK or the US, well, this might help you understand the social changes going on around you. And we're going to be getting on to language changes in the second hour. Thanks to Michael Gilligan for supplying this recording. The speaker is retired anthropologist Jeff Halper, who's also head of the Israeli Coalition Against House Demolitions. The book, which draws on his research in Palestine, is entitled The Global War Against the People, and that was the title of his talk at SOAS in London on the 8th of October 2015. You know, the, the military security industries together are about a two and a half trillion dollar a year industry. So the impact of that on societies, and I'll talk about in a second, a lot of this comes from the poorest countries of the world that are some of the largest purchasers of military security. So it has a huge impact, and it has to do with capitalism and the whole capitalist order because violence and inequality and exploitation and warfare and, and the need to pacify uh, is inherent in the capitalist system. I'm trying to kind of grasp the big picture, the logic of violence and of inequality and of, uh, of repression uh, all over the world, in which I think Israel-Palestine is a microcosm. 
In other words, from, sort of Israel, Palestine, in microcosm, kind of captures a lot of the global dynamics between the global north and, and the rest of the world in all kinds of ways that, I, that I'll mention in a few minutes. So that, that's very useful. But in addition to the economic part of it and the inherent uh, violence in the capitalist system, we're not really aware, and I put myself squarely in that category, we're not aware of where the military and security is going in terms of the technologies that are out there. Most of us come from the humanities and the social sciences. Certainly sciences is that. And most of us, and again, I put myself in that category, have no idea what these mad, hard scientists are cooking up in their laboratories. We don't study science. We don't know much about science. And then you get, you know, you get young people, you're, you know, 25, 30 years old, with a half a billion dollar grant from the Pentagon to develop some fancy military stuff in cutting-edge laboratories. We don't know what they're doing. In many cases, our whole concept of violence and how much we can be controlled and ideas of security are really outdated. We're kind of 19th century people and not even aware of the 21st century that's going to drop on us or that is dropping on us technologically. And of course, a lot of the technology, the advances in technology, whether it's PCs or in medicine or you know, almost anything, originate in the military. Because it's the military that has the trillions of dollars to play with. One of the smallest departments of the Pentagon, the American <coughs> Pentagon, is called DARPA. D-A-R-P-A, which is Department of Advanced Research and Project something. And if you look at their website, their mission is to make science fiction real. Take the most science fiction-y Harry Potter, you know, Star Wars, the most science fiction-y kinds of movies, and the idea is to make these technologies actually real and to implement them. It has a $4 billion a year budget. And it's one of the smallest departments of the Pentagon, but imagine having $4 billion to just play around with, with trying to translate video games into weapon systems. So that this is really, you know, part of the problem is the source of technology. The technologies that we're living in that, sh that fashion our world are coming out of the military. So that in many ways, you know, we're living in a military reality, and I think we're really facing a very totalizing kind of military security situation that we're not aware of at all. The left is simply not aware of it. You don't hear about it in demonstrations. You go to the World Social Forum or regional social forums. You hear about certain particular things. We've hit on drones. That somehow become an issue, drones. And here and there, there's, you know, Elbit systems. But overall, we're not aware of the technologies. We're not aware of the dynamics. We're not aware of the politics. And we're not aware of the scale of military and especially security. Stuff And that's what I'm trying to do in this book, is to kind of raise this issue onto the agenda of the left, using Israel-Palestine as a vehicle. So in a way, it's not Israel-Palestine itself that I'm writing about, although that, it's what I know, and so it's easy for me to come to. But if taking Israel is a very good case study, because if you're looking at militarism, you take the United States or Britain, global north countries... There's billions of dollars, and you have tridents, and you have jet fighters, and fancy weapon systems, and, and it's simply kind of overwhelming power that they try to apply in places like Afghanistan, and it doesn't work, but that's the, the concept. You take a little country like Israel that can't produce those kinds of things, that's very small, Israel has to be much more strategic 
in terms of how do we serve? How do we, how do we fit into this whole military security complex? And in, and in that sense, it's much more revealing of what that industry, where the industry is going, and what the niches are that really show you much more where the future of conflict is going than if you're looking at at a big military power. And in fact, Israel, the Ministry of Defense, and Israeli uh, arms companies use the concept of niche filling. And I talk about it in my book, I'll mention it in a minute, so that you can really get a very good sense of how the whole uh, system is working. I start with Israel, and I start with the question that Colin and I asked, how does Israel get away with this? You've got an occupation, 50 years almost, massive violations of international law, of human rights, it's brutal, and it's one of the most publicized conferences, maybe the most publicized conference in the world. I mean, it's right in the glare of the TV cameras. You know, everything is out um, in the social media and so on. And yet, Israel's doing fine. It has support of the British government, certainly. Uh, Horizon 2020, which is the main financial instrument of the EU, is, is funding Israeli military companies as well as other companies. Israel's status in the international communities is, is pretty good. Maybe not completely in, with public opinion, but it doesn't care that much about public opinion. It measures how well it's doing by governments. Uh, you know, the Israeli economy is doing well. Tourism is up. Bon Jovi just came and did a concert. <laughs> Roger Waters got upset, but who cares? And so the question is, how does Israel get away with this? And that really kind of got into a lot of, of interesting issues. Part of it being that a strategy of Zionism for the last hundred years has been to serve the hegemons. In other words, whoever the big powers are, it was Prussia and Germany a hundred years ago and the Ottoman Empire, through Britain, France, the United States, but also linking to all kinds of smaller elites. You know, Israel is the number two arms supplier to China. Israel is the number three or four arms supplier to India. So that, you know, elites go, and then, of course, Israel is very involved, I'll show you in a second, in the global south as well. So that Israel has a tremendous reach in terms of military security. And I think that gets to the question of how Israel gets away with it. Because the, the answers that, I, that you come up with, Israel gets away with it because of guilt over the Holocaust. Or the Jewish lobby. Well, one of the closest countries to Israel is Poland. And there's probably five Jews left in Poland. You know, one of the closest countries to Israel is Egypt. <laughs> you don't have any Jews in Egypt. So that doesn't explain. And then you've got the Christian fundamentalists. Well, there's a lot of countries that are very close to Israel, like China and India, that don't have many Christians. I was looking for the elephant in the room, the big reason to try to explain how does Israel get away with this. And it really began to strike me more and more, from, from what I know of the occupation, that the answer has to do with what I call security politics, which means the ability of a country to parley its military prowess into political clout. Because if you have a military prowess, the ability to use and develop weapon systems, especially, that is one of the keys to bringing you at the table with the big boys. I mean, I, you think about it, you know, if Israel didn't have the occupation, it certainly wouldn't be a semi-member of NATO. It wouldn't be the four, fourth largest nuclear power in the world. I mean, Israel would be New Zealand. It'd be some little country that's a nice little country. But in other words, the occupation is a resource for Israel. 
that gives it the ability to develop and test weapons that then plays into the security politics. Because what Israel's trying to do, and this goes back to the idea of serving the hegemons, the powers in Zionism, because Zionism was always a colonial movement. And even a hundred years ago, colonial movements weren't so popular. I mean, there was much more colonialism around. But the idea of a European people coming into Palestine... I mean, the Turks didn't like it too much. The Arab world didn't like it too much. The Palestinians certainly didn't like it. And there was always opposition. So this whole idea of how do we get away with it? How do we actually displace the Palestinians and take the country, despite the opposition of the local population, the regional populations, and to some degree, more and more and more, of course, global populations, is really the issue. So in a sense, Israel's trying to maintain its global standing as a powerful European democracy. All those are, are buzzwords, but that's where Israel is positioning itself, of course. That also wants to maintain its occupation. And so what it does is, then the strategy is to serve the hegemons. So how do you do that? You're a little country. I mean, Israel is a, a fraction of the size of, of, of Great Britain. How do you do that? Well, the, again, the resource that Israel has, I think, uh, is the occupation. And, the, and, the, and the, the Palestinians that are in some ways the guinea pigs. It became clear to me, as I was doing my work, and, and, and politically as well, that the issue isn't the Palestinians. Just to give one little example, the attack on Gaza last summer, the summer of 2014, by the military threat that the Palestinians, or Hamas in particular, posed to Israel. There was no real military threat. Certainly you can't explain the tremendously disproportionate amount of weaponry, of conventional warfare weaponry that was used in Gaza, unless you look at it as a laboratory, as a testing ground for weapons. So that, in a sense, Israel has this advantage of having millions of people, and uh, not just an occupied territory, but the whole... Middle East, in a sense, that can be used for developing arms, uh, security equipment, tactics of, uh, of pacification and securitization, and also framing. I, I won't get into that too much today. So that by then, the occupied territory and the Palestinians, as a way of developing these resources, where it begins to serve the hegemons of the world, and especially in the capitalist world that we're talking about, is by helping them to defeat resistance and to delegitimize resistance, which of course is called terrorism, to delegitimize resistance and any form of counter-hegemony, anti-systemic movements, and so on. What I argue in the book is that Israel has a much more relevant form of military security system than the global north does, because you don't have any more today interstate warfare. The last real conventional war, in a real sense, was Korea. You know, in the in the in the early fifties. I mean, you've had Iran Iraq, and you've had some limited wars, the nineteen seventy three war, Yom Kippur War, and so on. But basically, even though we talk a lot about war, war and peace, and there's departments of defense and so on, war is really kind of irrelevant today. But war, again, and armies and, and these sexy weapon systems are what gives you prestige. Look at today. Look at the Trident. You have the Trident missile that the Cameron is trying, I think, just gave 500 million pounds 
to, to develop or, or whatever. There's no military need for it whatsoever. The British Ministry of Defense says Britain has no adversaries in a military sense that it could ever use the trident on. But you see, the trident, that's not the point. The trident is a part of the basis on which uh, countries show that they're powerful. Their status depends on that. And it also has to do with deterrence, in the, in, in, you know, in the sense that we're, we're the strong uh, kid on the block and don't, don't mess with us. But they're irrelevant. Because for the forms of warfare we have today, that you could call securocratic wars, wars of pacification, the wars in Afghanistan, in Somalia, North Africa, in Latin America, all over the world, not only of the global north, but of their allies as well, are really wars of pacification. They're not conventional wars with enemies and purposes. And in fact, I argue that they're really wars that are intended to protect the capitalist system because as resources become scarcer and scarcer, you know, one of the major forms of war today is called resource wars. You know, if you look at the Congo and Africa in particular, but the poorest countries in the world, many of them are actually the countries that are sitting on top of the most valuable resources. So how do you extract those resources while preventing a surplus humanity, which is the way the capitalist system looks at the 99%, or as, as Colin would say, the 99.9% .9 of the people of the world as surplus How do you keep them under control? These aren't issues for Trident missile systems, or F-35s, or F-16s, or nuclear submarines. All these sexy weapons that define the power of a country militarily are irrelevant. So how do you deal with the new kinds of, of securocratic wars, counterinsurgency, asymmetrical wars, low-intensity conflicts, police operations, uh, peacekeeping operations that are, that are part of all of this? Who has the weaponry and the tactics and the experience to do that? It's Israel. More than any other country, because Israel's been involved in a war of counterinsurgency for the last century. Israel has the weaponry, but not just the weaponry, the structures and the tactics and the, and the models for pursuing the kinds of wars that Europe really hasn't been involved with, at least since the colonial days, for the last 50, 60 years. And so in many ways, uh, uh, Israel really is key to helping both the capitalist system and particular countries to defeat and delegitimize resistance and counter-hegemony. And in so doing, of course, that helps Israel then develop its arms and security industries. And again, Horizon 2020, which is the main EU funding arm, it gives a lot of money to Israeli... I mean, even now, I mean, I'm just here for a couple of days. I don't live here, but I mean, Cameron has said in the last couple of days, that local councils in Britain aren't going to be allowed to boycott Israeli products or even settlement products because Britain needs Israel to defend it. You can't weaken Israel because by weakening Israel, you're weakening Britain's ability to defend itself. I mean, that's the, where the whole thing has been turned on its head. And it's true in a sense. There's a geographer in Newcastle called Stephen Graham who's written a book called Cities Under Siege in which he really shows how British cities have adopted securitization equipment and tactics and, 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 and weaponry and so on from Israel. So that Israel in many ways is more advanced or more experienced and has more resources
for pursuing these kinds of securocratic uh, 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 forms of uh, warfare uh, and of pacification than countries like Britain, whose arsenals are built for fighting World War II. They're not built for contemporary conflicts. That's a niche. That's a niche that Israel has, has, has found and is exploiting, and in which its uh, repression of the Palestinians is key. So, you know, it brings up all kinds of questions. Why didn't Israel accept the two-state solution in 1988, when the PLO, almost 30 years ago, if it really wants peace and security, why didn't it grab the two-state solution? It could have had peace, security, and 78% of the country. 78% of historic Palestine would have been Israel and acknowledged as such or accepted as such by the Palestinians. Why didn't it grab that tremendously pro-Israeli solution? And I think the answer is because it needs the occupation, that laboratory, and it needs that dynamic to constantly keep developing arms because this is the base. First of all, it wants the entire country, so it doesn't want to a, a two-state solution. But but the added value is that also by by suppressing the Palestinians continuously, Israel is developing tactics and weaponry of pacification, which is the basis really of how the the capitalist system uh, relates to to everyone in the world through pacification. There's a, a fellow named Mark Neoclius who teaches in Brunel who's one of the heads of what's called the Anti-Security Project. And what they're arguing is that we shouldn't be using words like security. Because security feeds into the way the system wants us to think. It wants us to believe there's dangers out there. And who doesn't want to be secure? You know, I was in the Israeli airport leaving Ben-Gurion the other day. There were an American tourist couple that were yelling at the Israelis because they didn't have to, in Israel you don't have to take off your shoes. You don't have to take off your belt. You don't even have to take out your computer. You know, they have other ethnic profiling ways. They don't use technology. They use much more invasive in sense ways of, of, of security. But you know, they were arguing, how am I going to be safe on the airplane if I, don't, if I can't take off my shoes? So, you know, we buy into that. We internalize it. So what he's arguing, Neoclius and the others, uh, uh, are that we should be reappropriating the term pacification. And we're really talking about pacification. We're all being pacified. Now that problematizes, that brings up issues. Security closes down all the questions. Of course I want to be secure, that's fine. Secure me and, and let me get on the airplane. Who wants to be pacified? Now that brings up issues of who's pacifying me. How are they pacifying me? Why are they pacifying me? You see, it brings up all those critical issues that are really critical, that are really going on, that the language that we generally use closes down. And so by feeding into this niche, Israel is allowed and, and enabled to develop its arms to security industries. Cameron says so outright. Through that, they garner support for policies that would otherwise be unpopular, like the occupation, and that feeds back into the whole system. Uh, I'll give you just one tiny example. Uh, Nigeria. Nigeria has always been very strongly supportive of, of the Palestinians. And last year, if you, if you remember, the Palestinians went to the, the Security Council at the UN to try to get a resolution through 
to put a timetable on negotiations so it wouldn't drag on and on and on. Now, they knew the Americans were going to veto. So the idea was, let's make the Americans veto. And then it's very clear who's standing in the way of Palestinian liberation. So the idea was, you've got 15 members of the Security Council. Uh, if the Palestinians could get, could get nine to support the resolution, that would force an American veto, which is what they wanted to do. And they were relying on Nigeria to be that. They were sure it was going. this is going to work. And, and, and uh, the vote comes up, and Nigeria at the last second decides to abstain. And the whole thing collapsed. The United States didn't have to do the veto, and the whole thing just dissipated. And the Nigerians explained afterwards in a very open way, Israel is the only country that's effectively helping us with Boko Haram in a security sense. Israel is protecting our oil rigs, you know, that are really the targets of a lot of resistance in, in, in Nigeria uh, for environmental reasons, economic reasons, and so on. So that, you, you know, this is a part of the strategy of, of serving the hegemons. And, you know, every country has a vote in the UN. So, you know, Nigeria is just as important in the Security Council as the United States in that, in that sense. So that by spreading its, uh, it, it, you know, its military and security reach, and here's where you see in a country like Nigeria or Equatorial Guinea or Burma, in certain countries, it's not the military that's the most important. It's actually the security forces. Because who your enemies are, are your own people. Not, not some foreign, foreign enemies. And so Israel, again, with the experience of the Palestinians, is very good at exploiting that. And so what I'm trying to, to show in the book, in a way, and again, this is why I took Israel as a case study, and that is that Israel is in a very interesting, pivotal position. Um, it's very close to the major powers. I mean, it has a formal treaty as a strategic ally of the United States, and I, I go into that as well, but also Britain and NATO. It's in the NATO neighborhood. You have NATO exercises. Israeli weaponry is integrated into NATO weaponry and so on, and into the global north in general. But Israel is also very, very, very uh, tied into local he hegemons all over the world, the local elites in virtually every country, including, of course, not just the elected elites, including mafias, including drug cartels. In Colombia, there's a very famous Israeli arms dealer named Yair Klein, who was the head of an Israeli network of mercenaries, Israeli mercenaries. Israeli mercenaries were training the, the Colombian army and the paramilitaries and the drug cartels. So all these three sides that are fighting each other were all being trained by Israel. And that's the point. If we're serving hedge, there's a certain amorality about Israel. The whole idea is we can't choose our friends. We have we serve anybody. Anybody that serves our purposes of maintaining the occupation, of maintaining our status in the world, and so on, we'll work with. So that Israel, you know, and, and one of the reasons why Israel is so has such a reach. Is because there's no laws in Israel, like there are in Britain, for example, against taking bribes. When you, in a lot of countries, you can't do arms deals without taking bribes. All the ethics connected to, to, to business don't apply in Israel. So Israelis, in a sense, are like fish in the water. You take the roughest countries, 
and, and they love it. The you know, countries that would eat up European business people. So that Israel spans the major powers but gets down to the local, local level everywhere. Israel also has a great deal of experience in conventional warfare. You know, it's fought five or six conventional wars. But at the same time, with the Palestinians in particular, but also you bring in Hezbollah, you bring in Lebanon, Jordan to some degree, uh, Israel has experience in what's called warfare amongst the people. Or as my book says, war against the people. The whole integration of security and policing with war that you don't have in countries like Britain. Because the problem in the global north is that you've always had a separation, a wall, between the outside and inside, M5 and M6, military uh, policing. The Western countries always had that separation. And so when you're moving to a securocratic situation like most of these countries have done after 9-11 in particular, they don't have the structures. Israel is the only Western country that's always had an integrated military security police. You don't have in Britain the equivalent of the Shabak, the Shin Bet in Israel. That's one of the reasons why Israel is so important in training the British police and British security. Because it not only has tactics and weapons, it has structures that integrate these things. And Israel is very good at high-tech weapons, but also field-friendly weapons and tactics. You know, one of the problems with the American army is they have these fancy weapons with all their gadgets, and the soldiers can't use them. They're too sophisticated for the soldiers, uh, even, the, even some of the rifles. Uh, so Israel, what Israel does is it knows how to strip down weapon systems, make them user-friendly in countries where you have child soldiers that are 12 years old, but keep the capabilities of the weapons. So in all kinds of ways, Israel has a very interesting pivotal position. I've sort of identified four niches in particular that Israel fills in this system. One is it does provide high-tech weaponry and components to conventional military forces. I mean, it does, it does serve the militaries, even though the militaries are kind of irrelevant. But its other niche is developing weapons for what's called hybrid warfare, and securitocratic control, or what are called weapons of suppression. Uh, Professor Lead Stephen Wright, who has a, uh, a website called Stop Killer Robots, has written a lot about weapons of repression, or weapons of suppression, which is policing and securitocratic control. Israel off also offers a model of securitization, which is the matrix of control. In other words, the way it controls the Palestinians. The whole structure of control over the Palestinians, it exports. So Israel is really globalizing Palestine. It's exporting the occupation outwards. And then there's a the whole issue of framing and lawfare. How do you actually sell all of this? This just gives you a little bit of, a, of an idea of Israel's military and security reach. I would argue that Israel has more military security police reach globally than the United States. People say, well, what are you talking about? The United States has a trillion dollar a year defense budget. Defense. The military budget and security budget. The United States has 174 bases around the world. You know, the United States supplies 70% of the new weapons every year. How can little Israel have more of a reach than that? Partly because the American reach is kind of shallow. 
It's true they have bases, but you know American bases, you have them here. I mean, Americans are in their McDonald's worlds, and their bases, and, you know, and they're, they're with each other, and, and you don't see them very often. Uh, I mean, they're there, but they're, you know, and they're flying around or doing whatever they're doing. Israel, on the other hand, has two bases, both in Muslim countries. It has a base in Azerbaijan, which is a very great jumping-off place if you want to attack Iran, and it has a base in Eritrea, and some islands off Eritrea. But in general, Israel doesn't have bases. But what it does do, first of all, it has military relations. We know with at least 130 countries, and probably with more. I'm sure Israel has relations with Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, in ways that aren't, that aren't publicized. So probably almost every country has military relations with Israel. But in addition to that, it penetrates deep into, into the society. So Israeli, there's Israeli advisors, not only Israeli, but Israel has, I think, much more of a spread in, in this area where Israel trains the security forces of everybody. There's almost no country where Israel is not involved with the security forces, with the special operations forces, with the presidential guard of dictators, you know, Mobutu's presidential guard was trained by, uh, by Israel. Mobutu got uh, wings, paratroopers' wings. Idi Amin got paratroopers' wings uh, from Israel. So the security forces, the police forces, and then, of course, uh, VIP protection. You get Israeli military security policing deep, deep, deep into these societies, much deeper than the Americans uh, go in. So I, would, I think in some ways Israel is the country that has the widest military security police reach. When it serves the hegemons, I'm not just talking about the global north or even the BRICS countries. I'm talking about every country. And if you look in, at, at, at the uh, military spending of the 10 poorest countries in the world, look, you've got Congo, where the average income is $394 a year, and the Congo spends $300 million a year on weapons and security systems. So it's worthwhile being in the Congo. You know, we don't think about it and we see it, but, you know, from the point of view of economics and, and clout, the Congo, even though it's poor, is significant in terms of military security. You know, and, and you can go, I mean, it's the same point. You know, countries that have, that are very poor, nevertheless spend a lot of money on the military and security. So one niche then for Israel then is this whole thing of the military. Supplying military, and I just, I'm not going to go over this, but what I try to do in the book is actually set this out, because we on the left, the activists or people, we don't know anything about the military, including, I mean, I'm not, you know, it put me in, I couldn't tell you a howitzer from a tank. I don't know anything, but that's a real problem that we don't know, because we don't know what we're facing, and we don't know how to develop strategies of resistance, and we don't have any idea the powers that we're trying to face uh, in the world. And so what I try to do in my book is to lay out, just from the Israeli point of view, some of the military technologies that exist. So let's begin to say, you know, I'm an anthropologist by profession, and we, we work with informants in a, in a nice sense, not in the, not in the uh, Shin Bet sense. And in a sense, you know, what I try to do in my book is I try to let the military explain to me what they're doing and what their concepts are and how they see their weapon systems and so on. And I try to lay that out in the book. 
So that Israel has uh, is one of the, uh, the seven countries of the world that has the capability of launching its own satellites, and it launches its satellites from either either Azerbaijan or India. Israel has uh, nine spy satellites in the world. It has a whole network of communications and spy satellites throughout the world. And just so you don't think this doesn't affect you, I, I read in the newspaper yesterday. Facebook paid a hundred million dollars to the Israeli company that runs this. Israel's going to put up what's called OFIC 10, the 10th of the, of the series, in a couple months. And that will give Facebook access to Africa and to a lot of parts of the world that today don't have coverage from Facebook. Because it's a communication satellite, but a spy satellite as well. I mean, these two things go together. So that your Facebook has bought into Israeli spy satellites. There's all kinds of other satellites that Israel has. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So Israel's ability to use missiles, it goes way beyond the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, here again, if you look at the Israeli arsenal, it has nothing to do with the Palestinians. I mean, Israel doesn't have Jericho intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear capabilities. And Israel has between two and 300 nuclear warheads. It refuses international inspections. It never signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So everybody's focused on Iran that doesn't have nuclear weapons. And look at Israel. Could Israel can hit Britain with its Jericho missiles. And it has nuclear missiles. You know, this brings us into a whole area way beyond the Palestinians. And that's why I'm looking at the global, the global role of Israel. Israel develops, uh, it's a small country, but it's developed its own jet fighter. It prefers to use the Americans, because Israel becomes the testing ground for American weaponry. Israel is getting now a shipment of F-35s, these new stealth bombers, before the American Air Force does. Because it's better to have Israeli pilots test them than to have American pilots test them and crash. But Israel has developed its own jet fighters that it's selling to, it's used, but it's selling especially in Latin America. Also Sri Lanka, Taiwan is now probably going to buy them called the Kfir. It has a whole series of uh, missiles, sea-to-sea missiles, surface-to-surface, surface-to-air, air-surface, all, many of which have nuclear capabilities. And, in fact, Israel is now acquiring nine nuclear-capable submarines from Germany, some of which are a gift to Germany, thank you very much, and some of them are kind of sold at a, at a, at a, at a sale. Nuclear submarines aren't going to be used against Palestinians. So we're talking about an Israeli involvement in something much larger than simply, than simply Palestine. Israel can never produce a nuclear submarine like this. It just doesn't have the, the resources. It's, it's a small country. But the electronic brains and the radar systems and the targeting systems and the firing systems of these submarines are Israeli. So what Germany does is it, gives, it provides the shell, but it provides a tremendous economic and technical uh, opportunity for Israel to develop cutting-edge uh, high-tech uh, components for weapon systems. For example, the F-35, Israel could never produce the new F-35, but the cockpit of the F-35 is largely Israeli. The avionics, the electronics, the firing systems are Israeli. Every air force in the world uses Israeli uh, targeting pods for its missiles. Israel produces its own tank. 
And what it produces, it's becoming very popular, is a, is a protective system for tanks and armored personnel carriers. I won't get into all. There's so much. And cyber warfare. Israel is one of the leaders. And matter of fact, Cameron referenced that the other day. Cameron said it's Israel's ability to wage cyber warfare that's protecting Britain. And then there's all kinds of things I get into the book that I want about future weapons. Things that we don't, we're not really aware of. Uh, like, for example, uh, nanotechnologies. Israel is the world's leader in the military applications of nanotechnology. A nano is a billionth of a meter. It's the size of a molecule. So you can imagine what's called, for example, smart dust, which is if you're looking for somebody in Gaza or you're looking for somebody in London, you can program their DNA into a nanoparticle the size of dust, and you can spray it over a neighborhood, spray it over the city with a crop duster, spray it over Gaza. It's, it's invisible, basically. It's, it's like dust. And it'll pick up the DNA. You can find that person in a, in a minute. You can equip these smart dust with poisons. They're even developing micro, micro cameras, Elbit systems in particular, um, that are almost nano. So you, you'll have spot, you can, you can have invisible cameras all over. The, the cutting edge of military technology is called GNR, which is the combination of genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics. So imagine a nanobot, or swarm bots they're called, or, or nano warriors they're called, that are not much larger than a molecule, that can be enhanced with artificial intelligence. So that these nano warriors aren't programmed by us, but rather they have the ability to learn on their own, because this is enhanced artificial intelligence. And one nanobot, and they self-replicate, because you know you can't punch out nano robots all day. They self-replicate. So one artificially intelligenced, enhanced nanobot with the ability to kill, one nanobot can replicate three trillion times in three hours. So we're talking about weapon systems that are complete that are beyond science fiction. I've never seen a movie that featured nano dust. Smart dust, it's called sometimes. But at the same time, it's a dust that's smarter than we are. And, and, the, and the scientists are going, there's all kinds, I don't know if any of you are into all this, but there's some serious discussion about uh, how do we defend ourselves against our own nanorobots. Because if you replicate three, we know in human, in human replication, you get mutants. You get all kinds of mutations. So if a nanobot is replicating three trillion times, you're not going to get the same nanobot each time. So how do you how do you prevent them from turning against us? You know, so they're talking about nano walls, walls of nano warriors that will protect us against the nano warriors. I mean, the whole thing becomes uh, crazy and paranoid and everything, but real. This is this is real stuff. It isn't simply science fiction. Here's DARPA. That, that goes with the National Institute of Health and, and, and so on. And they have programs to integrate nano, bio, and info research. And their, one of their mottos is, in the future, every soldier will be a censor. Yeah. Another niche that's, that's no less important, and this is really more important, the most important thing from my point of view, it's ability to conduct uh, securocratic wars. This is just, just to kind of set this out in a, in a certain context. 
when we think of war, we're usually talking about conventional interstate wars. But like I said, they're, they're gone. There are no more. And there probably won't be major interstate wars. So what we're talking about are a combination of what are called hybrid wars and securocratic wars. Hybrid wars are when, <clears throat> like Hezbollah, or Al-Qaeda, or ISIS, or the drug cartels in Mexico, when, when uh, what are basically non-state actors, what used to be called guerrilla forces, have access to high-tech modern weaponry. So it becomes a hybrid because it's, it is partly conventional warfare. I mean, you know, they have missiles, they have, uh, you know, maybe nuclear capabilities to some degree. There's all, you know, it's a very sophisticated, you know, the, ISIS is holding its own against the, the global north and Russia. So it's not simply a matter of a few guerrilla warriors hiding out in caves and coming out at night and doing something. It's a hybrid war. And we have and think of all the terms we use. We use words like the limited wars, small wars, asymmetrical wars, uh, military operations other than war. That's a great term. And it's a great term because it lets you conduct a war against people without, without uh, a, a extending to them the rights that prisoners of war or combatants have. Yeah. You, you avoid the laws of warfare, which make the states, if you can do this, the states that are fighting wars like Britain, war criminals, basically. Because you, you, you've developed a, a kind of a mechanism for, for bypassing the, the laws of war because it's not really a war. What is it? It's, I don't know, it's something other than war. High-intensity operations, police operations. So you have a whole phenomenon of the uh, British Army that's really a police force today. And what, what are you doing in Afghanistan and, and, and places like that in, in Libya? Not fighting wars. There's regime change. There's nation-building, peacekeeping operations, policing operations, pacification the, the wars are becoming police actions, and that has to do with the capitalist system as well. The pacification, uh, as resources get scarcer, as there's more resistance, as more and more people are excluded, and so on, you've got to begin to have wars amongst the people, or as I say, wars against the people. And those are these kinds of hybrid wars, but then they get into what are called securocratic wars, which are fought in British cities. These are wars that are fought with you know, because fear, you know, the whole thing now about the, all the Syrian uh, refugees, you know, many of whom are Palestinians, being infiltrated with ISIS. Uh, you know, there's 4,000 ISIS refugees coming into Europe. So everybody, you see, so uh, this was a part of that breakdown of the inside-outside, especially it happened after 9-11, but, but even before, and that is that now the wars are internalized. We have immigrants, we have poor people, we have peoples of color, we've got uh, Occupy Wall Street, you've got even our own middle class kids are becoming our enemies. <laughs> All these internal, you know, and so in a way, war, you know, so the police are becoming militarized. The militaries are becoming policified, and the police are becoming militarized in the equipment they use and in their concepts. And one of the things that Israel trains as British police is that you're not protecting citizens, you're basically uh, uh, fighting uh, uh, potential enemies. Potential, you have to treat the public as potential terrorists, not as citizens. It's a whole change in, in concept. 
And so as it begins to get into the internal security, you begin to have, I mean, again, you know, you've got, you go through guerrilla war zone, all that, but then you get into counterterrorism, crime and terrorism start to come together, a homeland security, a permanent state of emergency. So that's the new normal. Now everything's a state of, well, in the state of emergency, everything's suspended. Laws are suspended, rights are suspended, and everything becomes securitized. That's exactly what Israel has over the Palestinians, a permanent emergency that allows it to do anything it wants to do. And if it can, it can show countries like Britain how to impose that themselves, then in a sense, you know, we have a saying in the Israeli peace movement that we're all Palestinians. And by that, of course, we mean that in solidarity. But literally, we're all Palestinians in that we're all on the receiving end of the same kinds of weapons and concepts and campaigns, securocratic campaigns, that the Palestinians have been subjected to. And that gets into policing and discipline. This is a Pentagon map of how the Pentagon views the world. You know, if you think this whole capitalist thing is kind of, a, of an old-fashioned term or some invention, you know, they talk about the core, and the core being basically the global north and what are called the BRICS countries. And then most of the humanity and most of the world is what's called the non-integrating gap. How's that for where a lot of you are from? The non-integrating gap. Now, what, is the, what does the non-integrating gap contribute to the world? They don't contribute diamonds, oil, natural gas, timber, minerals, and so on. They contribute pandemics, narcotics, and terror. I mean, it sounds like Donald Trump is running the Pentagon. You know? So, so what do you do? You have to shrink the gap. How do you shrink the gap? By exporting security. How's that for a term? Exporting security. Now, who does a better job than, than Israel in terms of exporting security? Uh, to, where to? To the worst security sinkholes. Whoa, how's that for a way to, 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 to characterize most of the world as a security sinkhole? And when, this, when necessary, regime change, nation building. You see, it's all the policing again. The policing, security, terror. So, you know, this really is the way that a lot of the militaries and security people and governments see the world. And so one of Israel's specialties are weapons of suppression and securocratic control, which means domestic control in cities, in police forces. And I won't get into it, but of course drones. Israel is the world's leader in drone production. And 40% of the drones in the world are Israeli. All kinds of, of weapons of suppression. Um, you saw the Merkava tank Israel has. This is called the Merkava LIC. What's LIC? Low-intensity conflict. This is what you use in Gaza. And then this is what you, you uh, deploy in, uh, in British cities when the need arises. American police forces have a lot of these Merkava LICs. All kinds of, again, uh, remote control weaponry. I'm not going to get into all of this. Plus, being the head of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, certainly a weapon of suppression is a caterpillar bulldozer that's used against the Palestinians. I mean, this is the D9 bulldozer, militarized, and caterpillar bulldozers are sold to Israel as military products. You can see the size of them. 
I mean, the shovel is the size of a two-story building. Uh, this is a smaller one, but you can see it's, it's, uh, the shovel is larger than a, than a human. And the shovel is built in a way specifically for demolitions. When it hits a building in Gaza, for example, and if you look at the films of the invasions of Gaza, when they, 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 they come from Israel and, and you have the column going into Gaza, it's, a, it's led by a bulldozer, followed by a tank, followed by a bulldozer, followed by a tank, followed by a bulldozer. The bulldozers are as crucial in this as the tanks are because they clear the way, which means, in, in the case of Gaza last summer, demolishing 18,000 Palestinian homes in order to make way for the tanks and for, and for the military. Well, if you have a normal bulldozer and you hit an apartment building, it's going to collapse on the driver. So the, 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 the shovels are designed in a way with the Israeli army so that when it hits a building, the building falls away from the driver. So this is a powerful machine that's explicitly used for demolishing Palestinian homes. And this is the Janine refugee camp in 2002 that was the victim of, uh, of a whole series of D9 bulldozers that worked for 72 hours straight without stopping. And the bulldozer has, just to show you, just to show you a hook in the back, because it's also used to destroy infrastructure. So they go into Ramallah, or Bethlehem, or Tulkarm, and, uh, any, any city, and the hook is shoved into the pavement of the street. And then the bulldozer, which is a powerful machine, simply drives up and down the streets of Palestinian cities, ripping out the sewer systems, the electric cables, the telephone lines, the whole infrastructure of the city is destroyed. This is a weapon of suppression. And again, the whole language of security. If it's security, we're protecting ourselves against terrorists. That's the way an entire people is characterized. So it's the good guys that drive the cat against the bad guys. So you can see the whole thing is a system. I call it a pacification system that fits together. And there's all kinds of drones, including mini-drones, the um, robotification of insects. There's a whole thing, robotic insects that get into nano. These are micro, they're, not, they're, they're bigger than nano, but nano weapons as well. I won't get into all of that. Plus all kinds of crowd control things and robots. Israel specializes in robots and getting down to SWAT teams and police forces. And we're talking about there's a whole institute at MIT that's connected with Technion in Israel uh, for what are called soldier nanotechnologies. Part of what I'm just trying to do in this book and in my lecture is simply to begin to raise the consciousness toward this because if we don't integrate this into our political analysis as people on the left who are politically active, then, you know, we're talking about irrelevant things. Uh, we've got to really become much more sophisticated. I'm not going to get into the whole matrix of control. There's a whole other thing. Never mind. But just uh, one last thing, and that is that um, this whole issue of framing, because that's also a part, a specialty of Israel. How does it get away with, with it? Not only get away with it in terms of the military, political support, the occupation. But if you go out in the street, I mean, I know there's been a change in public opinion, but if you go out into the street, Israel still enjoys quite a bit of support among the, among the people uh, out there. You know, it's seen as fighting terrorism, um, you know, the Arabs are terrorists, uh, you know, all that kind of... 
How does that happen? After all these years, when the facts are out and the, and the films are out, it shows you the power of framing. That Israel's framing, ability to frame and get us thinking with a certain language that prejudices the way we approach problems is also something that, that it exports. Here's a picture after Operation Cast Lead in 2008, 9, in Gaza, the, 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 the attack on Gaza, the uh, spokesperson of the Chinese army comes to Israel, this is the, the IDF spokesman, to learn how Israel sold Operation Cast Lead. Because if, if the Chinese can learn how to sell the, the repression of Tibet or, or of its minority, Muslim minorities to the world, that's a great thing. So that it, it's all kinds of levels to this whole thing. You know, he operates drones during the day and lights Hanukkah candles at night. Isn't that nice? And Israel has a whole project that it calls the Lawfare Project. That's very strong in the UK actually as well in which is trying to change international law. So, for example, one of the principles in international law is that you're forbidden to kill civilians or harm civilians in warfare, non-combatants. So Israel says, look, we're dealing with terrorists. We can't. They're not wearing uniforms. We have to change the law that anybody is a fair target so that the Israeli exporting of its occupation and the way it treats the Palestinians really uh, presents a threat to civil liberties in countries like Britain. What I'm trying to do in my work, look, I, I may, I'm, I'm approaching 70. So I don't have time for long uh, processes. I, I kind of want to jump to the bottom line. The problem is if the capitalist system that we live in. And we can fix this and that and have a campaign. You know, we're, we're always you know, against uh, something with the environment and something with, uh, with women and something with the developing world and something with uh, this. But it's all piecemeal. We're not approaching the logic and the structural violence and so on of transnational capital. Part of that logic has to do with this, all this military security stuff that we've been talking about and the weaponry that, that have a tremendous impact in our lives. It's a blind spot on the left. We never talk about this stuff. The military security is not an issue on the left, hardly at all. Um, so I'm trying to raise consciousness so that if we can begin to introduce a, a, a more critical view then military operations will be seen as irrelevant, which they are. War amongst the people, rather than, than securitizing us, is actually repressive. And in terms of a security-based framing, what we have to re-articulate, reframe what kind of a world system we want, and then begin to try to develop what I call going from the hegemony of transnational capital through this violent system and to try to get down into what I call at least a human-centric hegemony. What is that? And we haven't articulated that very well. So that I'm really trying, I'm really looking at this as kind of a, of a way of begin, beginning a discussion that can actually lead to big ideas of counter-hegemony. Not simply let's you know, deal with Afghanistan and let's deal with Somalia, let's deal with some neighborhood in, in, in London or something, you know, in a piecemeal way. But how do we really deal with the whole system? Now we continue with the Q&A.